Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Matthew 12, 38. Our study through the Gospel of Matthew has brought us to verse 38, where, Lord willing, uh, this morning we will conclude uh, chapter 12 as we continue to see this uh, kind of back and forth between Jesus and, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees. We're going to see the scribes have joined this morning in the text as well. So we want to, this morning we want to consider... Matthew 12, 38 through the end of the chapter. So if you're able, would you stand one more time, please, in honor of God's Word? Did I say 28? I meant 38. <laughs> Matthew 12, 38. Please hear the Word of God now. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers." For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. The title of the sermon this morning is Committing to Christ. What does it look like to commit to Christ? Or what hinders a commitment to Christ? Uh, what, What blessings come from being committed to Christ? These are all questions that I, I pray and trust will, will be answered to us as we go through this text. And I want to really go through it under the, the three paragraphs that we see here. And, and with each paragraph, then I, I give kind of a, a heading for if you're taking notes. So here, the first paragraph, beginning in verse 38, uh, point number one is a display of unbelief. Display of unbelief. Um, Again, for most of this chapter, really, Jesus has been going back and forth with the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, now the scribes who are, again, religious leaders. They were the the theologians, especially the, the, the lawyers, the keepers of the law. Now they've entered the fray. Verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. 
So the scribes, <laughs> they're here demanding to see a sign from Jesus. They're, they're saying, do this for us, Jesus, and then we'll believe. Jump through this hoop for us, Jesus, so that then we will follow you. And if you've been with us through these, these sermons on chapter 12, you're probably thinking, are you kidding me? Really? You're going to ask Jesus for a sign right now? I mean, let alone all that he's been doing in his public ministry up to this point, but he has just recently uh, cast out a, a demon from a blind and mute man, right? And, and, and it healed the man instantly. Instantly he was able to, to see and, and to speak, and no one could deny that Jesus had done this. I mean, he's just performed this, this great demonstration of power over evil. Not to mention all the other miracles Jesus has been performing. Remember, he's been cleansing lepers. He's been making the lame to walk. He's been casting out demons all over the place. He even, has even raised the dead. But still, that was not enough for them. They wanted Jesus to do some kind of powerful sign for them right now, on demand, according to their terms. Jesus answers them in verse 39. But an, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, now we'll get to what that means about Jonah here in just a minute. But notice what he calls them. He rebukes them strongly. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, throughout Scripture, God often gives his servants like Moses and, and Gideon and Elijah. He gives them signs to authenticate that they are sent from God, that they are speaking for God and and, and they have some God-given authority. But again, Jesus has already given numerous signs validating that. And remember, his signs have specifically been showing that he is the promised Messiah. Remember when John the Baptist was in prison and, and he's starting to kind of doubt because things are not going exactly the way he had anticipated. And he sends those messengers to Jesus. Remember what Jesus says? Hey, remember. Tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, right? The, the lame can walk. The deaf can hear. The prisoners are being set free. So Jesus has been giving these signs. Um, he's been demonstrating the fact that he is the Messiah. So the problem has not been a lack of signs. No, but what's the problem? When it comes to the Pharisees, the scribes, the other Jews like them, the problem is in their hearts, right? Remember, that's what we talked about last week. When Jesus called us to examine our hearts, they are an evil an adulterous generation. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, that term is going to come up fairly regularly in Matthew's gospel, an evil generation. And I know when we hear the word evil, we immediately think of like, I don't know, whatever uh, really bad sin you want to talk about, right? You know, we think of maybe someone murdering or doing awful things. But this phrase, evil generation, points to an evil heart of unbelief. Okay? It's important that you understand that. An evil heart of unbelief. And this phrase harkens back to the, the generation of the Israelites that we read about earlier in Numbers. Remember? Uh, God had powerfully, think of what was true for them. God had powerfully delivered them from bondage in Egypt. He had performed all these um, powerful uh, plagues. On the nation of Egypt, he had parted the Red Sea and, and let the Israelites go through and then crashed it down on the Egyptian army. Right before their very eyes, he had, he had done all these signs and wonders, right? And then he had provided for them through the wilderness. 
uh, manna and water from the rock. But now when they've gotten to the edge of the promised land um, and send the spies in to, to scout out the land, most of the spies brought back a bad report. And, and, and matter of fact, an evil report. We can't go in there. The people are too big. We're like grasshoppers to them. They'll, they'll destroy us. They'll take our women and children captive. You see, it was an unbelieving heart. They didn't trust God to provide for them what he had promised to do. Right? God had promised that land to, to uh, Abraham and, and, and then the forefathers, right? And then uh, to Moses. But they didn't believe him. They weren't believing God's word. They had evil hearts of unbelief. And so Jesus is, is saying, you Pharisees, you scribes, you guys have the same kind of heart. You're an evil generation. You don't believe what is right before you. You don't believe what God is doing in your midst. Not only does Jesus call them evil, but notice an, an adulterous generation. And you know that, again, that's a term the Bible uses a lot. It's talking about spiritual adultery. And that's a vivid picture, isn't it? Right? That's a vivid picture of, of just the heinousness of their sin. Uh, that people who should be faithful to God, people who should be faithful to their creator who's given them life, people who should be faithful to their God who had blessed them and provided for them and, and given them these covenants and given them the law and, and, and made them a nation, right? But instead they turned their back on him. They were unfaithful. Rather than give God the worship, the love, and the obedience he deserves, what have they done? They've run after other idols. They've run after other so-called gods. They've not believed God. They've cheated on God, right? To use our modern terminology. They've been unfaithful. They've cheated on God because they're devoted to their idols. And so here Jesus is, has been showing them again and again that he is the king sent from God, but they will not believe. Why? Because they're devoted to their idols. You see the connection here? You're an evil, unbelieving generation, and you're an adulterous generation. You're not believing because you love your sin. You love your idols. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to perform signs for people who are committed to unbelief. I'm not going to jump through some kind of hoops for you. You're not believing because of your, your sin, because you love your sin too much. I've done more than enough to show you who I am. So he says, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Now, what does that mean? Right? Well, he explains it in verse 40 in our text. Look there with me. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, talking, Jesus talking about himself, right, be, there, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, if you're familiar with that, that uh, Old Testament book, Jonah was a, a Jewish prophet of God who was called to go and preach to the wicked people of Nineveh, right? And Jonah didn't want to. <laughs> he, he hated the Ninevites. They were Gentiles, and Jonah knew that if he preached God's word to them, they would very likely repent, and then God's merciful, and he's going to forgive them, and Jonah didn't want that. So instead, Jonah disobeys God, gets on a boat, goes the opposite direction of Nineveh. God sends a great storm. Jonah is convicted. He tells the men to throw him overboard. He knows he's the cause of it, and immediately Jonah's swallowed up by a great fish. And then Jonah spends three days in the belly of the fish, 
and God causes the fish to, to vomit Jonah out on the shore. And if you read in the book of Jonah, not only do you see that happening, but even in chapter 2, you, you, uh, you hear what, what God's doing in Jonah's heart through all this, right? As he's repenting before the Lord. And so the point is here, um, what Jesus is, is saying is God worked a great act of deliverance in the life of Jonah, didn't he? I mean, God delivered Jonah from, from certain death there in the raging sea. And, and God delivered Jonah from the belly of the great fish. And, and really, we could even say God delivered Jonah from just a, a, this stubborn, rebellious heart. God worked this mighty act of deliverance in, in the life of Jonah. And likewise, God was going to deliver Jesus from death. In, in a short while, notice Jesus here in verse 40 is talking about something that's in the future, right? Uh, just as the Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days. And then in verse 39, he talked about the only sign that's going to be given to you will be the sign of Jonah. And so he's talking about his resurrection. In just a short while there, Jesus would willingly die on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. He'd be placed in a tomb, and then he'd be raised from the dead on the third day. God was going to work this mighty act of deliverance. That was going to be like this final sign to them of who he is. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. But by the way, let me just clear something up here that sometimes causes people some consternation, and I understand that. When Jesus says he will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth here in verse 40, that can be a little confusing, right? Because if you're kind of trying to tally it up, you're like, no, wait a minute. I, I thought he was crucified on Friday and then, and then raised on Sunday. That's only two nights, right? So what's going on here? And some people try to reconcile that by pushing back Jesus' crucifixion to an earlier day of the week. But I don't think we need to do that. I th- um, what I'm learning in my study is that according to Jewish tradition, this, this saying, three days and three nights, is just that. It's an ex- expression. It, 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 it means no more than three days. It can mean any combination of the three days. Right? So, in other words, what happened to Jesus, it spanned over three different days, right? He died on Friday, was still in the tomb Saturday, raised on Sunday. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. There's your three days. And that, that fits this Jewish expression. So, that was just a side note. But again, the point is, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to perform signs for you on demand, but there is coming one more sign, one, one amazing sign, where just like Jonah, God is going to work a great deliverance for me. God will raise me from the dead on the third day. And of course, the resurrection is the ultimate sign, isn't it, of who Jesus is. It's the ultimate evidence that Jesus is Savior and Lord. It's interesting, as you read through the New Testament, you know, once you get through the Gospels, right, you come to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And so this is the Apostles, the, the Peter, James, John, right? And those guys, um, it's covering what they do after Jesus is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven. Right? And so we get to hear their preaching, how they're preaching this. They've witnessed Jesus rise from the dead. They've seen him uh, go into heaven. They've experienced the coming of the Holy Spirit. And now they're preaching about Jesus. And guess what they continually point back to time and time again? What is their primary 
evidence that they give to people as they're presenting that you need to believe in Jesus because he is the Savior, he's the promised king, they're constantly pointing back to the resurrection. Right? You look at Peter's sermons, Paul's sermons, the epistles even, they're pointing back to the resurrection. They're saying, guys, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Savior. He died on the cross for our sins. And God raised him from the dead. We witnessed it. We saw him die. We saw him alive. We touched him. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't some kind of dream or vision. He was alive in a physical body. God raised him from the dead. God worked a mighty act of deliverance. And that is the ultimate sign. Showing that Jesus is Savior and King. And sadly, you know, uh, here Jesus in Matthew 12 is saying, there's going to be one more sign given to you guys. And I think sadly many of them, although there are some Pharisees that believed, Nicodemus and others, but many of them are still not even going to believe that sign, are they? You know, they're going to be trying to concoct plans to, to cover it up and, and you, know, make it, you know, pay off the guards and do this and that. Why? Because their hearts are hard. They're hardened with unbelief because they love their idols. They don't want to submit to Jesus. They don't want to give up their power. They don't want to give up control of their life. And the same thing happens today. Now in verse 41, Jesus continues his comparison with Jonah. Right? He says, verse 41, the men of Nineveh, right? Remember that's who Jonah was preaching to the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented talking about the men of Nineveh at the preaching of Jonah and behold something greater than Jonah is here so again you go back to the story of Jonah and you to finish that out God delivered Jonah he again calls Jonah and says hey I want you to go preach to, to the people of Nineveh this time Jonah listens and obeys and goes Right, And he, he begins preaching, proclaiming, hey, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. You know, the, the judgment of God is coming. You guys are wicked. You're rebellious. God's going to judge you. And you remember what happened in the, in the book of Jonah? I mean, the whole city repented. Even down to the very leaders. They, re, they repented in sackcloth and were fasting. And so God spared them from judgment. And so when the people of Nineveh, here's the connection, all right? Let's just connect the dots that Jesus is is saying to the Pharisees here. When the people of Nineveh saw how God had delivered Jonah, again, I'm not saying they all witnessed him getting spit out onto the the ocean, but who knows what he looked like, right? I'm I'm sure word got around. Man, look at this guy. You know, he just spent three days in the stomach of a fish. You know, he was pretty messed up looking, I'm sure. And... But when they heard and saw this this great act of deliverance, they they repented. They repented at the word of God as Jonah was giving it to them. And so Jesus is saying, they uh, they did a lot better than you guys are doing, right? Um, Jesus tells the Jews of his day, the people of Nineveh then, 
will be the ones condemning you on the day of judgment. They believed God's word. They repented with far less evidence than you guys have right now, he's saying. You guys have witnessed many more signs, many more clear signs than they had. And yet they repented and you're not. And so they're going to rise up on the day of judgment and be your, kind of like your, your, the jury, right? Or your prosecuting attorney. They're going to condemn you. So here we have this day of judgment that we've seen a few different times in this chapter, right? Imagine what that would be like for the Jews on the day of judgment. The people of Nineveh saying to the religious leaders, why did you guys not repent before King Jesus? I mean, all we had was this, this messed up looking guy, Jonah, de- declaring the word of God to us and we repented. Here you guys had the son of God. You had the promised king who was fulfilling all the scripture that you guys knew. And he was performing all these signs, validating his message. He was casting out demons. He was teaching with authority. And you guys would not repent. So the men in Nineveh are going to condemn them, Jesus says. And here Jesus, King Jesus, died and rose again and you still wouldn't believe. So, Jesus talks about this coming judgment, and he tells the first century Jews, someone, the people of Nineveh is going to rise up to condemn you, and notice verse 42, someone else is going to condemn you on that day. Look at verse 42 with me. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, who's the queen of the south? Well, that's if you read in 1 Kings chapter 10, that's the queen of Sheba. This is when Solomon, David's son, was, was king, reigning as king over Israel. This was like the peak of Israel's um, dynasty, right? This is the, the peak of their dominance. When, when they're enjoying peace and, and all these nations have been, have been defeated and are submitting to Israel and, and, and Solomon has all this great riches and, and wisdom. Remember, God had given him great wisdom. And so people were hearing about it, right? And so the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's wisdom. She heard of his great riches. And so she made the long trip all the way from southern Arabia to Israel to see Solomon for herself. She's like, I got to see if this is real. I've heard the reports. I've got to see it with my own eyes. So she responded, right? She, she was engaged, She responded in a tangible way to what she heard about Solomon, who was just a man. But here Jesus is saying, here I am, the son of man, the son of God, the one to whom all authority has been given, the promised Messiah. You see my works with your own eyes, and yet you will not respond, he says to them. You will not believe and repent. You'll not seek me with a sincere heart to learn more. You remain unmoved in your sin and unbelief. And so again, he says, since the queen of Sheba responded to Solomon, how much more should you all respond to me? Yeah, sure, Solomon spoke with the wisdom God had given him, but I bring a greater wisdom from God. Like 1 Corinthians says, Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. I mean, he is wisdom incarnate. Something greater is here. Yes, Solomon was a glorious king, but Jesus is the king of glory. And so he's saying, I'm declaring to you through my preaching, through my work, through the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of forgiveness of sins, of the defeat of Satan, of the deliverance of of captives, of the building of God's eternal kingdom. 
and yet you won't respond. And so the queen of Sheba, she's going to condemn you because, again, she had, she had much less. <laughs> she had much less. She had a, a report, and she went to a lot more trouble, traveled a long distance to seek it out, and here I'm doing this right before you, and you won't respond in repentance and faith. And before we leave this, just to, again, just so you get in the, kind of in the, the shoes of the hearers, this rebuke is strong enough, isn't it? But it would, it would have been even a little more stinging to them because think about who the people of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba are. They're Gentiles, right? They're both Gentiles. And so that would have been really stinging to the Jews because the Jews thought that on the last day, they would be the ones standing in judgment over the Gentiles. But here, as he often does, Jesus has turned the tables on them and says, no, it's going to be these Gentiles who are condemning you on the final day of judgment. This jury of the people of Nineveh, the Queen of Sheba, they're, they're going to say to you, this generation who's rejecting me, guilty. Guilty. You should have responded to the message Jesus was bringing. You should have bowed before the King of Glory. And so that's a good, important warning to us, isn't it? How much more will we stand condemned if, if we've not responded to Christ in faith? Here we who are blessed to have the entire word of God and to hear it pro- proclaimed and preached through many different means today, right? And so we, we are able to, to, to see and know and learn about, these, about who Jesus is and what he did and, and, and how he died and rose again. And yet if we don't respond in faith, we'll stand condemned on that day of judgment. And so, again, the message is called committing to Christ. And I'm calling on everyone to commit to Christ in repentance and faith. To not just have a head knowledge about Jesus, but to truly believe that he is Lord, that he is the Savior, that I need to follow him, obey him, submit my life to him. Everyone needs to respond to the person and work of Christ. And sadly today, some people test Jesus just like the Jews were trying to do back then, right? Maybe you've met some people like that. Rather than bowing to, before King Jesus in repentance and faith, they demand more signs. They say, well, Jesus, if you're real, then, then heal my loved one or help me get this job or get me out of this mess. They put the Lord to the test. And, and again, God in his amazing mercy may choose to be merciful in those cases. But it's presumptuous. It's wrong to demand that Jesus jump through some hoops for you before you will believe. No, God has spoken through his son. God has recorded it for us in the Bible. The truth is, Christ is Lord. He's demonstrated that by, by dying on the cross and rising again. And that's, that's all the evidence we need. And we're all called to bow before him and to follow him, to commit our lives to him. And so if you haven't done that today, I urge you, commit to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Embrace him as Lord. And I pray that everyone here today will do that.
Don't harden your hearts like the Pharisees did. On that final day of judgment, don't, don't let there be anyone to, any evidence that would condemn you to say, well, you heard, you heard the, the truth. You knew the truth and you didn't believe. No, on that final day, we want the person speaking for us, we want it to be Jesus Christ, right? Our advocate who says, no, they are, they are covered with my righteousness, My blood has cleansed them from their sins. They are clothed with my perfection. And so they're welcomed into heaven. That's who we want speaking for us on that last day. And that's who will be speaking for us if we're united to Christ in faith. So, I, you know, I think this text is primarily a call to unbelievers to repent and believe in Jesus. But there's a good reminder for believers today, too. Just for us to continue to be quick to hear and respond to the person of Christ in the word of God, to be amazed by Christ, to not take him for granted. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon, who was the most prestigious, glorious human king there was. Something greater has come. It's the king of glory. It's our savior who's defeated sin and death. Who, who reigns forever, before whom every knee will bow. And yet in all of his glory, he's also a merciful and compassionate Savior and a good king. And so we should be enthralled by him, right? We should be longing to worship him, longing to know him more, longing to, to sit at his feet. Again, the, the Queen of Sheba, it, it's, it's a rebuke, isn't it? Here she came all this way to, to, to hear of Solomon. And yet, how little effort we often put to, to pursue Christ, right? We have our Bibles right at our house. We have the church that's gathering all the time. And we don't want to put forth the effort too often. And so I think there's a challenge here for us as well. So that's the, the a display of unbelief, the, the Jew, the the. the Pharisees, the scribes, other Jews with them, they were displaying a hardened heart of unbelief, an an evil, unbelieving heart of adultery. Secondly, then, as we move into verse 43, let's consider the danger of unbelief. And I know verse 43, it's kind of like, wow, this is, you know, this is different, right? When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last day that person's worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. I'll just cover these last two headings quickly. I know that I know this... This may seem weird. Like, are we, what are, we, are we supposed to try to learn a lot about demons from this text or what? No, the point is, what happens when you don't commit to Christ? What happens when you see evidence and you don't respond in faith? And remember, the context for this is Jesus has just cast out a demon not too long ago, right? And so that's why he's using this type of language of exorcism. He's shown that the kingdom of God has arrived, but he's saying with those signs, faith needs to accompany the, 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 the scene of those signs, the evidence of those signs. And so the man in the story, was, it's not talking about the man necessarily that he just healed, right? But he's just saying a, a, a hypothetical man in the story is delivered from a demon, 
but he was spiritually empty. In other words, yes, God showed mercy to him, but he didn't respond by faith to Christ. He wasn't occupied by the Holy Spirit, right? And so, verse 26 says that the original, or uh, the original demon, not verse 26, but the original demon goes out and finds seven more spirits more evil than the first, and they all come back and take control of this man. And so now he's in worse shape than he was at the beginning. Instead of having one demon, now he's got eight. And again, the point is, it's because he didn't commit to Christ. He saw evidence. He even experienced evidence in the mercy. But he didn't commit to Christ. He didn't respond in faith and commitment. How many people of that day, think about it, how many people in the crowds saw or even experienced firsthand the healing power of Jesus, but then they didn't respond with a personal commitment to follow him in faith. And Jesus is saying, if you remain that way in time, you're going to find yourself in worse shape. And this happens today, loved ones. This happens today. People come to church with a crisis in their lives. And in desperation, they turn to God, so to speak, right? And God in his mercy gives them some relief from their troubles. But they don't accompany that relief with a full commitment to Christ. Yes, now maybe they're trying to have a better marriage or they're trying to do better in raising their kids, and, but they're never bowing the knee to Jesus. They're never embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so having never committed their lives to Christ, they're never transformed into new creations. They're never indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And so they're still lost in their sins. And what Jesus is saying is they're really in even greater danger. I mean, it's danger enough to be lost in your sins, right? But now they're in even greater danger because now they're deceived, perhaps thinking they're right with God because they hang around church and they try to be a good person. That's in greater danger, isn't it? To be lost and not know it. Or, or maybe when trouble strikes again, perhaps they become jaded to the gospel, right? Because they never understood what it meant to follow Christ. Hey, I thought if I go to church, I thought my life was going to be all rosy now. And now something else bad has happened to me, right? And so they, they turn their back on Christ even more hardened to him. We know, sadly, of people that's happened to, don't we? Or maybe they become sucked into a cult. And now they're even more trapped in a false gospel than before. I mean, why are cults so attractive? Oh, because you can have a better marriage or, or, you know, you can have a happy home or, right? You know, there's some semblance of religion and, and God's power, but it's not, the, it's not the gospel. It's not true commitment to the true Christ, People think, yes, I'll do the religious thing. I'll do the Jesus thing. Maybe then I'll have a happier life. Maybe then I'll have a better family. But they never forsake their sin and turn to Christ as Lord and Savior. And so Jesus is saying, guys, that's, that, that's dangerous. right? Jesus is not just some exterminator that you call to, to clear out things once in a while and then you leave him. No, he is to be Lord and Savior. He's to be embraced. When he does come mercifully and, and grant us relief and, and help, help uh, us clean out our lives, so to speak, we are to embrace him as Lord and Savior and say, Jesus, here's my life. Clearly, I was messing it up, 
right? Clearly, I cannot be Lord of my life. You need to be Lord of my life. That's what it means to follow Jesus. A work of God must be responded to by faith in Jesus. And failure to commit to Christ in this way leaves you in even greater danger. And now we come then to the third and final paragraph. We've been talking, I mean, I know it's been kind of a negative sermon, right? You know, all, all these more examples of unbelief, and, but we need to hear those warnings. But it, it ends on an encouraging note, this chapter does. Jesus did, in fact, have true followers. He did have a family, not those from a certain, not those from his bloodline, but those who have put their faith in him. That leads us to verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Mark's account of this little uh, account, little story here, tells us that at this, Mary and Jesus' uh, half-brothers were at this point trying to actually get inside and, and kind of do an intervention here with Jesus, right? They're trying to grab Jesus because they think Jesus is crazy. They don't believe in Jesus at this point. They, they, they think he's, he's lost it. He's out here claiming to be the Messiah. He's got all these people. You know, they, maybe they think he's getting in danger or whatever. And so they're like, okay, we need to kind of bring him home, kind of let him clear his head. Let's kind of straighten him out. And so here Jesus is in this home teaching, speaking. Someone says, hey, your mother and brothers are outside. And he says, no, here are my mother and brothers and sisters, right? The people who believe, and Matthew says, records Jesus saying, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So again, this shows us what a proper commitment to Christ looks like. A Christian is someone who believes in Christ and then obeys Christ, right? Whoever does the will of my Father is my brother and sister and mother. And we've seen that again and again in Matthew's gospel, haven't we? So I won't belabor it. But obeying Jesus doesn't make you a Christian, right? Because we can't earn our salvation. But obeying Christ is evidence that God has saved you through Jesus Christ. But what I want to highlight for you today as we close, and this is the third heading, is Christ's love for his disciples. Right? We've been talking about committing to Christ and and I want to encourage you, as you commit to Christ, just know how much more Jesus is committed to you. Christ's love for his disciples. As I've studied and thought about this, this passage here, obviously we know Jesus was not demeaning his physical family, right? We know Jesus uh, honored his, his parents. He cared for his siblings. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. So that would... those. Honoring, caring for them, that was important to him. So Jesus is not, I don't think we should look at this as a statement demeaning family. Rather, it's a statement elevating disciples. Elevating the family of God. It's not that Jesus doesn't love his earthly family, but he loves his disciples even more, and he gives that relationship the priority. Again, there's lessons there for us, aren't there? There's always applications. Likewise, we should give priority to Christ and his kingdom. He deserves our highest commitment. But be encouraged, Christian, that Jesus is even more committed to his people. I hope this passage reminds you, Christian, 
of Jesus' love for you. Meditate on that. Jesus calling us his brothers. This is the eternal son of God. This is the king of glory. This is the one before whom every knee will bow. And he's looking out at people just like me and you who by his grace have, have trusted in him. And he's saying, here's my brothers. Here's my sisters. This is my family. What amazing love that is, isn't it? Amazing love. Just know that Jesus loves you. I've been calling you to commit to Christ and I pray you will. And all of, all of you who have committed to Christ know that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He died for you. I mean, that's what greater love can there be than that? He called you to himself. He forgave all of your sins. He, he gave you, he credited you with his righteousness, his perfect life. He shares his inheritance with you. He has indwelt you with his spirit. He loves you. And he will always love you. Amazing love. That the God of the universe loves us. I I was reminded of that hymn that we used to sing. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. Praise God. And it's his love that will keep us committed to Christ. So yes, AGC, I'm calling us to be committed to Christ. His amazing love for us deserves our commitment, doesn't it? He deserves our best. But be encouraged, his amazing love is what strengthens our commitment to him. His amazing love is what preserves our commitment to him. He is the good shepherd. No one is going to snatch us out of his hand. He is the one who will lead us and carry us and strengthen us all along the journey. So let us be committed to Christ, knowing that he will never leave us or forsake us, and that we'll get to enjoy him forever. What a family reunion that will be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do stand in awe of you today. Again, as we consider who you are and what you have done. You are the king of glory. You are greater than, than I think of all that we've seen in, in this chapter. <laughs> you are greater than, than David. You are greater than the temple. You are greater than, than Solomon. You are greater than Jonah. You are greater than everyone. You are the one true living God. You are the Savior and King. And we praise you and thank you for for loving us. Loving us so much to, to leave the glory of heaven and come and die for us. And we praise you that you rose from the dead and now called us to yourself. Please help us to to live out our commitment to you. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. And we want to bring you glory and become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Will you stand please and we'll conclude by singing another song of praise.